My name is Josh. I am the preaching minister here, the preacher here at Alliance Christian Church. I'm so happy to have everybody be here. Like I said earlier, I know everyone's tired, everyone's exhausted. Even if you weren't um, here during the week, uh, I know you were dropping off, Craig, you were dropping off grandkids and going back and forth, and even that's a lot of work. So again, I want us to, I want this to be a time of rest, a time of reflection, and, and I want you guys to really take advantage of this time that you get to dive into God's Word and to get to know Him. Um, and I want to I start off by talking about turning points. Every good story has a turning point. There's a point in the story where, where something happens to the main character or the hero or the, if, it's a, if it's a history event to the real-life person, something happens, some fact is revealed that's the turning point for the entire story. There's a really neat movie. It came out a long time ago. It's called Stranger Than Fiction. It came out like clear back in 2006. It's about this man whose name is Harold. And one day Harold wakes up and he starts hearing a woman's voice narrating his life. So he gets up and he brushes his teeth and he hears this woman narrating. Then Harold took the toothbrush and brushed his teeth. And he goes up and he gets dressed and, and he starts hearing the woman say, then Harold picked out his favorite blue suit and put it on. And it's going through this, you know, he's trying to figure out what's going on. And then all of a sudden, the woman narrating his life begins to start predicting things that's going to happen in his life. So he walks out the door and he hears the woman say, little did Harold know that the taxi cab was going to drive by and splash water on him. And then two seconds later, the taxi cab came and splashed water. It's a, it's a really neat movie. It's a, it's a PG-13 movie. You guys can make your own choices about what movies you watch. But it's a neat concept. But the turning point of that movie is one day Harold is walking along and he sees this interview on television with a New York Times best-selling author and he recognizes her voice. And he comes to find out, oh, that's the woman who's been narrating my life. And he starts putting pieces together that... In some strange world, she's writing her next novel, and he happens to be the main character, and she's controlling his life. It's a really cool movie. But the turning point is when he starts researching this author and finds out that she's famous for killing off the main character in every single one of her books. Yeah. Uh-oh. And so that's, that's the, I won't spoil it, but the, it's an example of a turning point where the movie's going in one direction and then you get this sudden piece of information and all of a sudden everything's different. Now everything is about finding this woman, stopping her from writing the book because he's worried that he, she's going to somehow write his death. So in God's big story, in God's history of the world, the turning point in the book of Matthew and really in my opinion, of the entire Bible, comes in Matthew chapters 16 and 17. Richard read those last week. This is the point in which everything in the narrative of the Bible changes. In Matthew 16 and 17, two major things happen. One, we as the reader finally have conclusive proof that Jesus is the king. Jesus finally just comes right out and says it. Up until this point, we've been kind of wondering, we've been reading along, if we're reading this for the first time and thinking to ourselves, like, I think he might be the Messiah. I think he might be the king. 
There's sure a lot of pieces going on. So in, in chapter 16 and 17, Jesus finally, he's transformed. He shows up before the disciples up on the mountain. And we have 100% certainty that, okay, this is the king. And the second thing that happens that is the big bombshell is Jesus tells his disciples and us, the reader, that the king is going to die. That's kind of a big revelation, isn't it? If you've never read the Bible before and you come to that point, you're going to go, what? Not only that, but he tells his disciples that unless they take up their cross and die with him, that they will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's the point. That's the point in the book of Matthew where everything changes. And even if you, if you read the rest of Matthew, you'll even notice that the way Jesus interacts with the Pharisees is different. The way he does things is different. He stops telling people to hide the fact that he's doing miracles. Because now he's out in the open. Now the turning point's happened. He, he starts acting toward the Pharisees and Sadducees with much more boldness, boldness. Almost like he has nothing to lose. And the disciples are having a moment of crisis. They don't understand what Jesus means. They don't understand what this whole the Messiah has to die thing has to do with anything. Which takes us into chapter 18. In chapter 18, the disciples are trying to understand what the kingdom is going to look like after what Jesus says comes true, after he dies, after he resurrects, after he ascends. They're trying to understand how the kingdom of heaven should look after the king is gone. That's, what the, that's where their mind is. So we get to chapter 18, verse 1. And it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now let's, let's be real here for a second. What are they really asking him? What they're really asking him is, Which one of us is going to be in charge when you're gone? Which one of us is the greatest in your kingdom? Because they're... They're going through the process of wrapping their minds around the fact that Jesus just told them he's going to die. And they're looking around at each other going, well, there's 12 of us. I think I'm the better leader. I think I'm the one that needs to be in charge of this whole show. And they're jockeying for power and position, which kicks us off into Jesus' fourth major speech in the book of Matthew. Let's read verse 2. It says, He called a child, had him stand among them, and said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn around and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want to talk about this, this turn and become like a child thing, but I also want to talk about this fourth speech. I've been mentioning there's all these different speeches. There's five speeches, and we get into 18, this is the one where Jesus is describing what the church should look like. Well, you even hear it called, it's called the church discourse, is what they label it. And so as we read through this passage, this is one of the speeches that we should really be looking at and applying to ourselves, because 
This is directly applicable to us. Jesus is saying, what should my citizens be doing after I am no longer walking around on this earth? So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. They ask him, who's going to be the greatest? And he pulls a kid. He pulls a kid over and says, unless you come and become like this little child, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's an interesting verse because I think sometimes what we do is we take our ideas of what we think about when we think of children and we read it back onto the Bible. So we read a verse like this and we're like, what? Children have innocence. They have this beautiful sense of curiosity. They have this relationship with God that is so pure. And I think those are all really good things, and I think they're all really good things for Christians to have. But I want us to take a moment and try to understand what Jesus was saying at the time. And I don't think that that's what he had on his mind when he was talking. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have curiosity and innocence, but I just don't think... That was the point he was trying to make. Let's look at the context of what Jesus is actually saying on the pages here. The context is the disciples are jockeying for power and authority. They're fighting each other, struggling to see who's going to be in charge. And they're living in a culture in which status and authority mean everything. Every single person in first century culture had a ranking. You, you were at this level, whether you were an emperor or a slave or a scribe, depending on who you were, where you were from, what you did, you had a ranking in the culture and you knew where you stood with everyone else. You could size yourself up and say, well, I'm a Roman citizen and I'm trained in the synagogue, so I'm at this level. You're just a fisherman with no education, so you're here. That means I have this authority over you. And there was one particular group of people who had the lowest ranking of all. Lower than slaves, lower than servants, lower than even the peasants. And it was children. It seems odd until you think about the fact that a child can't really do anything, can't he? You might be the son of a king, but you can't do anything without having your parents' permission. So even if you're nobility, even if you're up here, but if you're a child, you're always going to be down here on the totem pole. On the social ladder, being a child is about as low as you can possibly get. And so the point Jesus is getting at to tell his disciples is less about curiosity and less about mindset and more about your humility and where you place yourself in terms of authority. You place yourself on the bottom rung of the ladder. Verse 4, he says, Whoever then humbles himself, right? We're talking about this lowest version. Whoever then humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. So if we're thinking about the question, what should the kingdom look like after the king has left, I think the first thing we need to understand is that the citizens of the kingdom should be humble. Jesus says, you need to become like this child. You need to humble yourself. And not only that, 
you should understand the responsibility that comes along with that. Think about this. As much as we try to humble ourselves, as we try to place ourselves in a low status, those, those power dynamics, they still exist, right? They still do. We can all be equal, but when a police officer steps up to your door, there's a, there's a social interaction that happens there. When somebody's standing up in front of a room and talking, there's a social interaction that's happening, and you perceive that there's a power imbalance. Well, so when, when Jesus tells all of his followers to humble themselves, doesn't that open the door for the opportunity for people to take advantage of that? For, for people to take advantage of the fact that somebody has been told to humble themselves. And so people do bad things. People take advantage of that fact. And Jesus takes that very seriously. In verse 6, he says, But, he's talking about this humility, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a huge millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the open sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. It is necessary that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into fiery hell. Well, that took a turn, didn't it? Those are some really harsh words after this really nice story with Jesus and the little kid. And then he says, but here's what's going to happen if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. But those power dynamics that exist and the sin that exists in our hearts means that there are naturally going to be wolves who come into the flock who try and take advantage. That's just something that's going to happen, and Jesus does not, he doesn't want that to slide. The church is, hopefully, the church is designed to place those who are in leadership at the lowest level. That's the way it's supposed to be. I, as the minister, am not supposed to have authority over anyone. The word minister in Greek literally means servant. That's a lowly position. God's upside-down kingdom, right? The word pastor means shepherd. It's a lowly position. But there are people who take advantage of that. They teach false doctrine. They, they try to get their own way instead of God's way. And so, yeah, it's harsh language when Jesus says it'd be better to have a millstone thrown, thrown around your neck because... He takes that seriously. He loves his sheep. And he doesn't want anybody leading his flock astray. He says, See that you do not disdain one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. 
What do you think? If someone owns a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, will he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go look for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice more over it than the other 99 who did not go astray. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing for one of these little ones to be lost. That's how much God cares about you. That's how much he loves you. The citizens of God's kingdom should be humble. The citizens of God's kingdom should understand the responsibility that comes with that humble stature. And the citizens of God's kingdom should be willing to go after the sheep. They should be willing to go after the lost. And they should care for one another just like he cares for us. And then you get into verse 15. I want to read chapter 18, verse 15. He says, If your brother sins, go and sh- Oh, let me get the thing on there. There we go. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault when the two of you are alone. If he listens to you, you have regained your brother. Okay, I want to, I want to get a, a, a poll of the room. If you're reading a Bible or if you're going back from memory, whose Bible says if your brother, if your brother sins against you? Has anybody ever heard that? Maybe a King James, maybe a different version. I've heard some Bible translations that say if your brother sins against you, go and tell them their fault. And then others say if your brother sins. Has anybody at least heard both of those versions of this? This You've got against you in yours. Okay. Mine's got if your brother sins. This is one of those... This is one of those verses in the Bible where, unfortunately, when we go back to the earliest, oldest copies of the Bible in Greek, and we go back, we find some copies say, if your brother sins, and some say, if your brother sins against you. And unfortunately, we actually really don't know which one's the original. I'm sorry if that bothers anybody, but if your Bible has those little footnotes that says some copies say against you or some copies don't say against you, just understand that there's some verses where it could be either. And in those cases, we need to just hold that in our mind and think of ourselves, well, it could be one way or the other, and so we should act on both, and we should take both to be on the safe side. But I'm not going to make a call on which one I think is the original one because I don't think, I think it's just better if, if uh, I give you the information and then you can decide for yourselves. Some say this, some say that. But regardless, let's look at the steps that he takes to address sin or when somebody sins against you. He says, first, I want you to go and address the issue one on one. I want you to talk to that person. And then in verse 16, he says, um, but if he does not listen, take along one or two others with you, so that at the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be established. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, treat him like a t- Gentile or a tax collector. So here's, here's how this passage usually gets used. Here's how I've seen it used. Unfortunately, this passage, I think a lot of times will get used as a weapon 
to go after somebody who's doing something we don't like. I think it's happened. Is where you read this passage and somebody reads this passage and thinks to themselves like, well, I really don't like that they're doing that, but I'm going to go through these steps so that I can get them in trouble with the church first. So first I'm going to go talk, then I'm going to bring my witnesses, and then and you've got the end goal in mind. I think that's something that that can happen where people use this passage as an excuse. But remember the context of what Jesus is talking about here. We're talking about humility. We're talking about how the church is supposed to be after Jesus ascends. And I think if we use this passage as a tool to maintain relationships... Well, then we're on the right track. See, here's the part that you you get into verse, it says, go talk to the person, and if they don't listen to you, then it gets into verse 16, it says, but if they don't listen to you, go and take two others with you, so that, that at the testimony of two or three witnesses, everything may be established. And this is usually the point where what we do is we bring two people that we really know are already on our side, And we're like, hey, this guy's doing something I don't like. Let's go. Come on, come on. Well, that's not what it means. He says, at the testimony of two or three witnesses, so that every matter may be established. Not just your point of view, but that person's point of view. What Jesus intended was for us to bring an impartial witness along to mediate, and that sometimes means being humble enough to be willing to hear your witnesses say, uh, actually, I think you were in the wrong. I think he had it right the first time. That's a big difference. When you bring someone along and say, hey, we're having this disagreement, we're having this sin problem, and I don't know if I'm right or he's right, so I need an outside witness who's going to be impartial and establish every matter. Because we have a goal of maintaining unity. That's our third point. I think citizens of the kingdom should have an eye toward unity. And he gets into verse 17. He says, um, sorry, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you release on earth will be released in heaven. Again, I tell you the truth, if two of you on earth agree about whatever you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are assembled in my name, I am there among them. He's talking about unity here. That in the original language, that you, whatever you bind on earth, that's a plural you. That means it's, he's saying whatever y'all bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It's not a one thing. It's a unity thing. And Jesus wants us to understand that the relationships we make with one another can have eternal effects. So think about the status. Think about the picture that Jesus has described of the church so far. He's described as a church where people are humble. A church where people are understanding of the responsibility that comes along with their humility. 
A church where people want to take the status of a child. A church where people take God's word seriously and they take the responsibility seriously. And it's a church where relationships are maintained and restored and people are willing to communicate openly to solve problems, to maintain relationships. I witnessed every single one of those things last week at VBS and every Sunday. It's really hard. This is, I'm going to take a minute. This is a passage of scripture that is very harsh. It's very, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do that. And I spent a lot of time reading this passage of scripture and going over it and thinking of how it's going to apply to you all. And y'all are doing it. Every time I would read a verse and I would try to write something for this message, I would say, yeah, they, ACC does that really well. They're all, yeah, they're really humble. They're really good at communicating with one another. They're really good about taking the Bible seriously and taking God's word seriously. And it's watching everyone here this week when we were doing the silly dances and teaching the classes and breathing life into these children, it was honestly the proudest I've ever been at a group of people. And so I, I want to give you guys a pat on the back because I, I read through this passage and it's like, this is what the church is supposed to look like. This is what God's church is supposed to look like. And then I looked around at all of our people and I was like, yeah, I'm here. I'm in it. I'm in God's church. It's right here. I see it. And that's amazing to me. Like You have no idea how much it warms my heart to be able to read God's word, to be able to read Jesus' instructions for his flock, and then to look up and see it being lived in real life by a group of people. I, I can't, there's no, nothing else I can say but thank you. Because what you guys did for our VBS, for every Sunday, is you've taken the gospel and you've gone out and you've made disciples. You've done what Jesus is asking you to do. And so you, you can smile about that. Like, I just love it. We get into the last thing that, that Jesus wants to describe his, his kingdom. This is Jesus talking about Peter's question about forgiveness. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but 77 times. And real quick, would somebody be willing to uh, call or text uh, Richard or Kathy and bring them up from... Children's Church, sorry. This last point on what the kingdom should look like. He says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Because we're talking about sin, we're talking about maintaining relationships. How many times should I forgive? Jesus says, not seven, but 77 times. Or your Bible might say 70 times 70. 
And I want you to understand that that number seven is symbolic in Jewish culture. It means, it means unlimited. It means whole. It's a whole number. It's an unending number. It's a complete number. And then Jesus tells a story. He says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with one of his slaves. As he began settling accounts, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Okay, I want to... 10,000 talents, that's a Bible word, it's a Bible term. Let's get some context how much 10,000 talents is. One talent was equal to about 15 to 20 years wages for the average worker. You think about somebody who makes minimum wage, how much they would earn in 20 years. That's one talent. And he says, somebody in here owed him 10,000 talents. Can you guys picture how much money that is? If you put it in today's dollars, if you just if you, if you pegged it at about minimum wage for 40 hours a week for 20 years times 10,000, it equals about $3.5 billion. That's how much this man owed the king, $3.5 in today's dollars. Verse 25, he says, because he was not able to pay, because he, he's $3.5 billion in debt, because he was not able to pay, the Lord ordered him to be sold along with his wife, children, and whatever he possessed, and repayment to be made. Then the slave threw himself to the ground before him, saying, Be patient with me, and I'll repay you everything. The Lord had compassion on that slave and released him and forgave the debt. Remember, $3.5 billion, his debt's wiped out. It says, After he went out, the same slave found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred silver coins. So he grabbed him by the throat and started to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe me. Then his fellow slave threw himself to the ground and begged him, Be patient with me and I'll repay you. But he refused. Instead, he went out to throw him into prison until he repaid the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were very upset and went and told their Lord everything that had taken place. When his Lord called the first slave and said to him, Evil slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have shown mercy to your fellow slave just as I showed it to you? And in anger, his Lord turned him over to the prison guards to torture him until he repaid all he owed. So also my heavenly Father would do to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. These stories, when you talk about money like that, it helps. I find it helpful to actually get an idea. So $3.5 billion dollars looks like, let me get the thing to pull up, three and a half billion dollars looks like that. That's Buckingham Palace in England. Did some research. You could, if, if the King of England decided he wanted to sell Buckingham Palace, they could probably get about four billion for it, just real estate wise. A hundred silver coins, a hundred denarii, in today's dollars is around 5,800 if we're using the same standard, minimum wage, 40 hours a week, etc. So that's three and a half billion. This is a 1996 F-150 I found on Facebook Marketplace. Um, got 150,000 miles on it. It's listed for six grand. 
So you could maybe talk him down to 5,800 if, if he siphoned the gas out of the tank. <laughs> Think about the disparity there between this and this. It's not even in the same ballpark. And the slave refused to forgive. He refused to forgive the 1996 F-150 when he had Buckingham Palace forgiven of him. So what does that mean for us? Who is our king that forgives our three and a half billion dollars worth of debt? Every sin we've ever thought, every sin we might commit in the future, from the moment of birth up until now, Jesus has forgiven us. This is what our kingdom should look like. This is what God's kingdom should look like. It looks like having the humility that comes from being at the level of a child. It looks like understanding the responsibility that comes along with that. It looks like doing everything possible to maintain unity. And it looks like remembering how much Jesus has forgiven you. And remembering how much you owed that you don't owe anymore. And when you have that mindset, everything changes, doesn't it? Jesus' kingdom is radical. Hey, which one of those are you going to do next? I don't know. We'll talk about it. Jesus' kingdom is radical. Radical humility, radical responsibility, radical forgiveness. And I just want to say that I've, I've been at this church for almost, actually, right about a year now. And like I said before, I, I've had the opportunity to sit down and talk with you all about some important things that's going on in your life. I've had the opportunity to get to know everyone in this church. And I'm really proud of the fact that I see every single one of these qualities in this church. I'm really proud of the work that God is doing at Alliance Christian Church. We started off by talking about turning points. I think that what we did last week can be a turning point for this church where everything changes. Because I've seen it. I've seen what we can do when we put our heads together, when we do something amazing. And I think that that could be a turning point for us moving forward into this community, spreading the gospel, making disciples. And so if if that's something you're interested in, I think we can continue that on. I think we can continue to take God's church and grow it like never before. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your church. We thank you for the picture that you've shown us of your church. God, we just ask that you would help us to continue to live in your spirit, to continue to grow in you and to continue to love others and forgive others the way you forgave us. 
And most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And we pray all of these things in his precious name. And the church said, Amen. At this time, we're going to sing a song of invitation.